Hello, and welcome to the Screen Podcast Series, a set of conversations about the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings. This work was conducted by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network, SIREN, at the University of California, San Francisco, and funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Welcome to the Screen Siren podcast series. I'm Erica Brown, a social epidemiologist and postdoctoral fellow at Siren. Today's conversation is one of a series of episodes on the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings, all stemming from a 2022 report that synthesized existing research on social screening in the U.S. I'm thrilled to speak with Sarah Coombs, the Director for Health System Transformation at the National Partnership for Women and Families, and Janice Tufty, an active patient partner in research, evidence generation, measurement, and care improvement. Today, we'll be discussing the third chapter of the report, which reviews the literature on patient and patient caregivers' perspectives related to the rationale for screening and acceptability of screening, screening domains, and screening practices and data practices. Sarah and Janice will share their thoughts about the existing research and what they think needs to come next in this rapidly evolving area of social care practice. Sarah and Janice, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd love to start off by asking which research findings from the report you found most interesting and why. Thanks, Erica, and and thank you for having me. Um, This is Sarah Coombs from the National Partnership. I just want to also just underscore, thank you for elevating the perspectives of patients and caregivers in this work. It's so important to do that. And I think this report is just so timely um, and needed, of course, with the, you know, the urgent need to advance health equity, you know, more than ever before and and collecting critical data like social needs data from from patients and caregivers is, is really one important way to move that needle. So, you know, I personally found this report just really well-timed and um, important for identifying research gaps um, to help inform implementation and scaling of, um, you know, best practices um, in the future that will hopefully be more culturally congruent and equity focused. Um, So I guess to answer your question, I found um, I found it interesting that patients trust in their caregiver and, and sorry, in their providers was associated with higher acceptability, which of course is not surprising, you know, when you consider the the sensitivity of these questions and the stigma that, um, you know, this personal information um, can bring and, you know, also the unintended consequences that um, can unfold if not handled with the utmost uh, consideration for, for privacy and confidentiality. However, or I guess like on the other hand, the report also found that there were uh, no consistent differences in acceptability by race and ethnicity. And um, to me, this just really underscores the significant need for more research on the social screening experiences of uh, historically and system systemically marginalized communities, because you know these two findings together are are interesting. I think we know that that our health system um, is fraught with a long history of institutional and interpersonal racism and bias. Uh, whether implicit or explicit, and that the reasons why, you know, communities of color, especially, may be mistrustful of their of their providers and healthcare institutions are, are valid. Um, in fact, uh, one of the largest polls to date conducted by the Harvard School of Public Health, um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and uh, NPR a few years ago found um, 
it, it found that you know it focused on like personal experiences with with discrimination access um, in more than a dozen areas of life, including healthcare. And what they found was that roughly a third of all African Americans report being racially discriminated against when seeking care. Um, and as a result, you know, over one in five African Americans say that they avoided going to the doctor or seeking care out of concern that they would be discriminated against or treated poorly because of their race. And so, you know, people are highly attuned to discrimination in the health in the healthcare system, and um, it really compromises patient trust and consequently their health. Um, so, I think it's just really important to focus on building trust. Um, like, you know, like all relationships, time and effort is required in building trust um, between providers and patients and um, healthcare institutions and communities. And so it's really important to understand and address these trust deficits and ensure that, you know, screening efforts uh, do not further inflict harm or, or trigger trauma. Um, so I guess like stepping back when you think about that entire, that entire context that I just discussed, you know, you really do have to kind of question the generalizability of the, the finding that there are no differences um, by race and ethnicity. Um, and again, it just, I think limitations and studies are, are also very important in telling for that, you know, to help inform future research, but I think is the point of this, of this report. So I'll stop there and turn it over to Janice. Thank you, Sarah, and um, thank you, Erica. And I appreciate uh, Sarah bringing up the issue of of health equity and uh, racism, and um, you know, in inequities that exist today, and how we're trying to tackle them in different ways. And I do believe personally that um, I one of the things I found interesting in the report was if individuals were connected with their primary care physician, they were more likely to find assessments acceptable. You kind of touch on that, but I believe this reinforces the importance of building relationships that might lead to more trustworthiness, which is lacking as was mentioned. And um, eight out of the 12 studies that were specifically looking at the patient and caregiver perspectives found the assessments acceptable but I always think about what, what about the other four, right? So, and in that case, I think of um, some individuals I've spoken to myself and I, you know, we have to remind ourselves that individuals do become frustrated patients and clients because they're asked the same questions repeatedly. So the timing of these social screening is something that we have to talk about too. And I also have very strong data privacy concerns around social determinants of health. I've been a a very strong advocate for collecting the data, but as well, how are we going to keep it private and how do we ask the questions, right? But some communities of color were concerned of how their data was collected, and this is understandable. And though in a couple of other cases, community members who have been most impacted by constricting structural policies and lack of opportunities expressed less concerns regarding screening. So, uh, you know, this just definitely shows that we could use more, have more uh, research in different areas. But either way, you know, I believe that individuals should be able to opt in or opt out of assessment options. And this should be um, stated up front, right, sort of uh, informed consent. And I am a patient partner, a, a public patient involved with evidence synthesis work. So I really appreciated that the authors did their own research in areas where there were gaps around patient and caregiver perspectives and the implementation of social screenings. And it very much surprised me that there had not done, uh, there had not been any, uh, you know, synthesis work done in this area. 
and then they underwent their own uh, systematic reviews. So I serve as Cochrane Consumer, and um, which is a global organization, and I'm involved with developing systematic reviews now and then. So this is an area that I'm involved with. And um, something else that was pointed out in the, in the report uh, is that most existing surveys are risk-based and not asset-based. And I believe it's very important to recognize that patient knowledge, skills, and attitudes are important too when we're uh, asking questions. So uh, I, I thank you and I'll send it back over to Erica. Thank you so much, both. Both of your points underscore that there's just so much more to unpack within this space, particularly as it relates to health equity, and ensuring that screening is done in a way that's acceptable to communities of color and other populations that have been subject to so much structural violence within the healthcare system. So thinking about that and the broad range of things that we still have yet to uncover, what do you think is missing from the research and what do you think are the implications of those omissions? So I know that, you know, I just brought up the importance of more research based on race and ethnicity, but I think it's also equally important to understand experiences with an intersectional lens. Um, you know, for example, there were only three studies that explored differences by gender, um, you know, with no mention of um, gender identity and findings were not consistent across studies. And, and one study found that the, the odds of um, social social screening acceptability were higher among among females compared to males, which kind of leaves out non-binary folks um, already as it is. And, and in contrast, the other two found no differences in acceptability by, by gender. And to me, this kind of just begs the question and further understanding of how does this differ for women of color or for you know, trans women of color? Um, or, you know, let's take another example of to immigrants. I think the study found that immigration status was an acceptable um, screening domain or, or acceptable um, social need to, to, to ask in the screener. And so I was thinking about this, like this intersection, using this intersectional approach, um, you know, given immigration status as an example. And how would results differ for immigrants of color versus, let's say, um, Caucasian immigrants from Europe, for example. Um, so an intersectional approach that focuses on the unique challenges um, that, that, the, that those who sit at like intersections of overlapping systems of discrimination face, such as let's say like Mexican immigrants, for example, who face both racial discrimination and discrimination because of their immigration status would really help us understand um, you know, unique experiences and inform how we implement social screening practices for certain populations. Um, and it's just, it's so important for researchers to, to use an intersectional approach when studying differences in outcomes and experiences. So I would just add that, that really want to just double down on the need for more, um, a, a more intersectional approach in studying um, best screening practices in the future. Thank you, Sarah, for bringing up those points. And I remember years ago mentioning to PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, one of their leadership about how are, why aren't we doing studies on like chronic conditions and multiple chronic conditions, not just two, and how are we going to do this? And he said, well, if you can think of it, you know, come up with a good model, let us know. And it's the same is true about intersectionality. And we can take all of this information, but what are we going to do with it when we have it? And um, I kind of took that approach more of a, 
um, what at the base level, what individuals might be experiencing. And I think um, research should be done on the how, when, and why assessments are presented. Organizations should document options around when and where assessments are provided or given. Purposeful, informative questions could be asked about the assessments, inquiring why individuals feel surveying is important to them in their community or not. We also should do research on how to reframe the questions to be more meaningful, ask patients and caregivers about their feelings around surveys. Everybody's over-surveyed today, right? So we might think about how do you feel about where you currently live or stay instead of do you have housing, right? Because people might not feel safe and that might be the most important you know, aspect of where they live or they don't have clean water. And so that's, you know, they might have housing, but there's a lot more to it, the intersectionality as you were mentioning. So ideally, I think there should be multiple modality choices for administering surveys as questions can be very triggering and we should all recognize that one person might like a paper to, you know, a paper survey, another person might prefer to do it electronic beforehand. And you could try starting out with, you know, maybe electronic beforehand and then a paper or a tablet, but just handing somebody a tablet in a clinic is not okay. We need to do research and find out what, you know, how, when and why the assessments are given. But collecting social needs data as a preferred choice formats can make a big difference, especially for narrative or story-oriented community members, which we have a lot. And a lot of the you know, populations that have been historically uh, exclu you know, excluded from some of the research work and definitely from the co-design work, I think should also be co-designing some of these, uh, how to do this. Thank you so much. I mean, you're raising such important points about identifying best practices around actually centering patients and ensuring that patients from all identities and intersections are represented in this research which as you both know, certainly wasn't the case in the preliminary studies that we found. So shifting gears a bit, there's also some tension around whether or not we should ask patients about social risks when we aren't confident that there are sufficient social services available to meet the needs that patients endorse. So does the fact that most patients found screening acceptable surprise you or do other findings in the report affect your thinking, influence your thinking on that topic? I had touched on it a little bit before that eight out of 12 the studies and the patient and caregiver had found it acceptable, but I immediately went to the four, right? So um, I was involved with uh, affordable housing for 10 years before moving into health systems research. And I really saw, and we recognized during those 10 years, it was the mandate for the 10 year plan in homelessness, that people really need wraparound services, right? Food, transportation support systems, healthcare, broadband community, and uh, individuals are sometimes to share their personal needs with others, right? Or they don't feel comfortable, just like uh, Sarah mentioned earlier. And sometimes it's, you know, there's not other people in the office that look like them and they might feel more secure talking to somebody that looks like them. And then in some other cases, they might not. If it's a very small community, they might prefer somebody else giving, you know, providing this for them. But I'm concerned about the availability uh, of housing for people who are experiencing housing insecurity because it's very limited currently. But there are many opportunities for innovation for better, safe, safer housing. Thinking out of the box locally, how you can tackle homelessness is uh, something that really has to be done on a local basis, though there is federal funding definitely to be tapped into. And it's important to recognize that trauma can be experienced by both parties 
the individuals who are being asked the information or the ones that are giving the assessments. And I did see this in housing. So I know this is gonna be an issue if you ask somebody about their housing and it's, you know they're not housed and you don't feel good about it or it, it really can be traumatizing to everybody involved and the clinicians included because if the clinicians really want to uh, respond to the patient's needs, they have to think about how they can frame you know, the, the, the appointment as well as what are the best treatments for what the individual has and what their needs are. So I highly recommend inviting patients and caregivers to focus groups to discuss how-tos. Uh, Trauma-informed principles should be implemented across all areas of social screening, research, and assessment implementation. And the Camden Coalition National Center for Complex Care and Social Needs has done great work in this area. They've developed core competencies, strength-based screenings, and more. And I believe trauma-informed principle-based screenings should be done because it can really help to inform person-centered care for hopefully better outcomes. Sarah? Janice, you um, raised uh, something that I had not thought about before, um, thinking about the trauma that folks who are giving the assessment could face. And so I thank you for raising that point. I had not thought about that, but I completely agree with trauma-informed principles. I couldn't agree more um, regarding, you know, that you know, screening should still be done because it does help inform, um, you know, it is a critical step in providing whole person care and, um, you know, the opportunity to really see patients as people. And, um, you know, whether or not, you know, there there are resources, you know, going back to, the, to, to your question, Erica, you know, whether or not there are resources available to meet to meet social needs, I, I think screen, screening, as, as Janice just pointed out, must be done in, in a trauma-informed, culturally congruent and, and non, non-judgmental, respectful way that, that really honors the, and patients and caregivers' dignity. And this conversation reminds me of a term that I learned um, from research conducted by Public Agenda, where they did focus groups asking um, parents how they feel about their child's pediatrician asking about um, social needs. And the term I'm recalling is, is called double loss, which describes the frustration many parents uh, expressed in those focus groups where they framed the disclosure itself as one loss and not getting help as a second loss. And this is you know really an for- unfortunate position to be in. And, and but I but I think, but I still think that done screening done the right way can mitigate this. And that's why it's so important for us to have a better understanding of you know who are the right staff members to ask those questions as, as Janice raised, and how do we effectively train the workforce? You know, what modality of screening is best? Um, you know, how do we create safe spaces for patients and caregivers to to answer you know these intrusive and, and sensitive questions? And, and perhaps most importantly, it's it's so critical to ensure that patients and caregivers like understand why these questions are being asked, like what will be done with this information and, and how um, their privacy and confidentiality will be pres- preserved. So, um, you know, the fact that most patients um, in this in this review, literature review found that screening acceptable does surprise me, but, but I think, like I mentioned earlier, it's just so important to have a better understanding of how this, you know, their this acceptability per se um, truly does vary a- across groups um, using that intersectional lens. And um, how will we ensure that screening in the future um, is implemented um, the right way for, for all communities? I could not agree more with both of you. So looking ahead, how do you think we can use this report to inform or influence healthcare conversations that you've been part of? 
Sure, I'm happy to start with this one. I think um, this is actually a great opportunity to uh, raise um, a, a recently uh, launched uh, framework for healthcare or organizations to advance um, equity and care delivery called Raising the Bar. Um, this strategy was developed by um, the, the National Alliance to Impact the Social Determinants of Health um, and include um, many other partners and multiple stakeholders in the development of, of this of this framework. And it was uh, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, you know, it, it includes specific uh, principles and roles and concrete actions that um, healthcare organizations can use to begin or advance their equity work. And the strategy's core principles include committing to a mission of improving health and well-being, um, systematically pursuing health equity and racial justice, authentically, part authentically partnering with communities by sharing resources, voice, and power, and in earning and sustaining trusting relationships with individuals, families, and communities. And this report details um, roles that healthcare organizations um, play that must be leveraged to achieve equity, as well as um, case studies and, and concrete actions for each role and resources for those who are looking to start or accelerate this work. And one of these concrete actions is for health systems to provide holistic effective high quality care that's responsive to plans co-created with individuals, families, and caregivers. And the report calls out like one way to put this action into practice um, by underscoring the need to collect, use, and share data as necessary and, and respecting privacy and patient preferences on health um, and social needs to provide responsive and appropriate care to individuals and families, as well as to improve the health of communities. And so the report, um, you know, it also emphasizes the need to partner with other sectors and invest in communities so that healthcare does not and frankly really should not do this work alone. Um, the work, you know, this work that the healthcare system is not actually really necessarily equipped to do. So I think the report, this, you know, the, your, your report, its findings and, and its call for more research is, like I said, is, is really timely and should be used to inform how health system leaders apply the Raising the Bar framework um, and its promotion of social screening as a key component of, you know, comprehensive, uh, multifaceted strategy for improving equity. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you um, talking about Raising the Bar and um, it is the more holistic or the more stakeholders we have, to have at the table, uh, the more we'll be able to move forward in a direction that really could be replicable and um, appreciated by many. So I also think that um, this report could really, br it brings up the subject of social screening to the forefront of clinic and social service conversations, as well as in, uh, it could be informative to policymakers and from patient and caregivers to informing clinicians for more appropriate direct care. Uh, you might hold workshops or webinars around setting guardrails uh, around assessments, addressing primary or secondary trauma around receiving or giving surveys and assessments, and best practices, uh, and ask people what they, they themselves think the next steps should be or could be and who should be at the table. It's really important to ask people who else maybe should be at the table. I'm currently on an equity um, work group is called um, Pro-Equity Anti-Racism uh, for the state of Washington. Uh, our governor has mandated that all the departments look at this seriously with uh, community. And 
there's probably 40 or 50 community members from around the state that are coming together to help inform. Uh, so around the healthcare authority, how they can be, you know, tackle these issues. So I also see this report as uh, foundational to future research where uh, patients and caregivers are, so, are co-designing, uh, providing insights along with community frontline staff, clinic champions up to the C-suite, which sort of uh, affirms what Sarah was mentioning with Arisa Barr and this report. So I'd like to thank you. Uh, and uh, if you have any more questions, uh, I'm here for it. Uh, thank you so much. I have so many more questions, but unfortunately that's all the time that we have for now. So thank you both so much for your for this rich conversation and listeners, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this special summer screen break episode of Siren Coffee and Science, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Andrew Fankush does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.